Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my book project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the scriptures. The Word Diet's good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. That way you get accountability and better discussion. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but really I'm aiming the project at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet gotten into the great Word of God. If this is you and you're enjoying the show, I think you'd enjoy the Bible on your own as well, at least with a little bit of help. So how about picking up a few friends in the Word Diet and working your way through it. If this isn't you and you're very comfortable with the scriptures, I'll bet you have friends who aren't. So that's what the Word Diet's for. Grab a couple of them, meet for coffee once a week, and work your way through the Word Diet. Let's get people into the great Word of God. More information is available at thoroughlyequipped.org. For the radio show, we're in the book of Leviticus, a greatly underrated book. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. So please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. We just started into two weeks on chapter 17 through 22 of Leviticus, which is the start of the second half of Leviticus and what's often called the Holiness Code. Last week's episode, we went through chapter 17 and into chapter 19, but didn't finish it. That episode and all others are available by podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google. This week, we'll cover the rest of that material, continuing to work through chapter 19 and getting through chapter 22 by the end. Lord, be with us today as we open up your scriptures. Help us to understand your character, what you were trying to do with Israel, what you want from us and for us as well in the days to come. In Jesus' name, amen. Please pray for the Pure Radio Network, the station, and the show. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Leviticus 19 through 22 today, and we had left off last week with verse 14. So I'll read verses 14 through 18. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God, I am the Lord. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. As we talked about last week, verse 13 ends a section that is largely, although not completely, focused on the Ten Commandments and derivatives of the Ten Commandments. And 14 through 18, we're still in uh, highly interpersonal laws, the relationship between people. It starts with the vulnerable in verse 14. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind. In other words, don't say ugly things to a deaf person who can't hear you, and don't trip blind people who can't see you. Matthew Henry describes this as adding affliction to the afflicted. So the broader concept here is if people are down, don't keep kicking them. That's terrible. Now, if you think about these examples literally, they're terrible, especially putting a stumbling block in front of a blind person. I mean, what's worse than that? There's also some easy applications here, particularly for the New Testament reader, to think about stumbling blocks, which is a common metaphor in the New Testament. Paul uses it to talk about the weaker brother and the stronger brother in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8. We need to be careful not to put stumbling blocks in front of people, period, but especially the blind and the weak. And then later in verse 14 gives the motivation, fear the Lord, which implies God will defend them if you don't, and as in other earlier examples of exploiting the vulnerable. 
Verse 15, we've got a call to justice, and the negative of that, do not show partiality to or lift the face of. And you can see where this phrase comes from, lift the face of, when someone's face has fallen, you want to lift their face. But the prohibition here is against lifting the face, showing partiality to the poor or the great. So you judge your neighbor fairly, and that's how God does it. And so holiness means emulating, imitating God, and so we judge people fairly. We don't hold a theology of health and wealth, which assumes that if you're not doing well, then it must be God had cursed you. God sends the rain on the just and the unjust, we know from Matthew 5. And we don't have bias in our views toward the rich or the poor. And in our culture, we see some people who do one, the other, or both. Verse 17 says, do not hate your brother in your heart. And this prefigures a New Testament focus on the outward and the inward. Proverbs 26, 24, enemies disguise themselves with their lips, but in their hearts they harbor deceit. Or think about the focus in 1 John chapter 2 and chapter 4 on hatred towards brothers is inconsistent with love of God. And notice that the emphasis here is on your brother. So this section is focused on the Israelites. In the second half of Leviticus 19, it'll revisit the same concepts, equally so, with the alien. Verse 17 continues, rebuke your neighbor frankly, so you will not share in his guilt. Proverbs 27, 5 and 6, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Or think about Jesus in Luke 17, 3, watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them, and if they repent, forgive them. It's interesting that a failure to rebuke means that we're also guilty. This reminds me of the watchman in Ezekiel 3 and 33, whose job it was to call out the enemy, or in this context, to call out sin. If we don't call it out properly on top of that, then we're also guilty. So verse 17 opens with don't harbor, and verse 17 ends with rebuke, and those are opposites. Harbor is to keep it inside, rebuke is the external and proper manifestation of it. Again, it has to be done with truth and grace. Milgram says here, one of the ways to love your neighbor is to reprove him openly for his mistakes. Conversely, the only admissible rebuke is that which is evoked by love, not by animosity, jealousy, or lust for power. Verse 18 continues the theme, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge. Again, a do not, so we're back to the negative here after the negative and positive of verse 17. Verse 18, the negative here is about vengeance, which is action. Verse 17 was grudge, which is a thought. Vengeance here is extra legal and extra biblical. It's outside the law, it's outside the Bible, and retribution given by an individual outside those systems. Instead, it should be given to God in the courts. That's the implication. Part of the law is setting up a court system. Uh, here in the Pentateuch, but a lot of this is leaving it to God. Romans 12, 17 through 21, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So, in sum, there's never a time to hate your brother in your heart. You're never to seek revenge, but there are times to rebuke your neighbor frankly. So, sometimes we miss that opportunity, and sometimes we take things improperly into our own hands through vengeance, and that's what's being described here in verse 18. 
The end of 18 has the capstone to this passage and arguably Leviticus itself, love your neighbor as yourself. Again, we're going back to the positive here. So the alternating back and forth is interesting. Don't do this, do this. Don't do this, do this. This reminds us of Paul with the old man, new man in Ephesians 4, 25-32. This is smack in the middle of a 37-verse chapter. If you do a little bit of math here, we're in verse 18 and a half, and that's halfway through 37. And it's what some people see as the climax of Leviticus, especially from a New Testament perspective. It's very easy to see this. But even in the context of Leviticus itself, doing love is a huge step toward imitating God and achieving holiness. And remember, that's the point of what we're covering right now in Leviticus. Love your neighbor as yourself is totally in line with the verse and a half before this. Love is both thought and deed. It's us to others, and it's based on what God has done for us. We've received grace and love. We extend it to others even when they're being knuckleheads. And of course, all of this prefigures a huge New Testament focus on the same themes. Obviously, in the ministry of Jesus, we see verses like Matthew 5, 43 through 45. You've heard it said, I love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Again, we hear echoes of Leviticus in the words of Jesus, both the call to love your neighbor and to imitate our Father in heaven obedience to the command to love is consistent with the holiness of God and us imitating that holiness. And so elsewhere in the New Testament, we see writers coming back to this consistently in the ministry of Jesus and then in the epistles, references to the two greatest commandments. Love is the sum of the law. Love with all your heart, soul, and strength. It's all about love, God's love for us and the love we extend to other people. If we're not loving well, then we're not obeying, we're not holy, we're not righteous. One last point to make out of this chunk of scripture is the focus here is on obligations, not rights. We live in a rights-based society, particularly in the world, and that's not the emphasis here. It's not a right to be loved. It's an obligation for the believer to love others. That's the emphasis in scripture. Okay, so verses 19 through 22 is the next section, and it's a great example of the miscellaneous nature of what seems to be the organization or lack of organization in Leviticus 19. Verses 20 through 22 is the case of a man who sleeps with a woman who's a slave girl promised to another man, the subsequent guilt offering with restitution for atonement. Verse 19 is probably more interesting to the modern eye. Do not mate different kinds of animals. Don't plant your field with two kinds of seed. Don't wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. On this last command, maybe practically back then, it promoted the quality and the lifespan of the garment. I'm not an expert on those things. Certainly today, if this law were in play, we would have to change our clothing quite a bit. We're always mixing kinds of fabric in our clothing. But let's go to some bigger picture observations, right? This implies that they shouldn't mingle with Gentile and pagan practices. And that broad principle is certainly applicable for us as well. Or to be a bit more specific, don't confuse what God made distinct. We'll talk about this in a bit, but Genesis 1 was about separation. And here we have them combining things that God had separated. Matthew Henry says, as what God has joined, we must not separate. So what he has separated, we must not join. And then related to this, mixtures are seen as disorder, and that's reserved for God and the sacred realm. Think about the cherubim, which are a mixed form of order different kinds of animals combined into one angel. Think about the sanctuary and the fabrics, the mix of fabrics that were allowed in the sacred realm. The high priest clothing, the ephod, the breastplate, and the belt all have mixtures of fabric 
the priest's clothes, only the belt, Exodus 39, 29, for the simple priest, but even they had a bit of a mix in their clothing. And even the more dedicated laity, when they wore tassels on their garments, there was a single blue thread of wool in that. So the mixed yarn is also a picture of holiness. So the consistent picture here is that God doesn't want us to be mixing things unless it's in the holy or sacred realm. That's for God. And then 26 through 31 gives a variety of contrast to pagan religious practices. In verse 26, a prohibition against eating meat with blood in it. We've talked about that quite a bit. And a prohibition against divination and sorcery. Verse 27, don't cut your sideburns or clip off the edges of your beard. This is still followed by Orthodox Jews, and it probably connects to idolatry among Israel's contemporaries. Verse 29, don't make your daughter a prostitute. This could be for economic reasons, but the greater concern here is probably for religious reasons. Remember that the pagans often practice cult prostitution, and so God is saying absolutely don't do that. Verse 30, reverence the Sabbath, reverence my sanctuary, and verse 31, another poke at mediums and spiritists. The most interesting verse here, at least for modern eyes, is do not cut your bodies for the dead and no tattoos. Then, again, it would be to emulate pagans or slaves, and so that's not appropriate. What do we do with this today? Well, first of all, it's ceremonial law, so we don't need to adhere to it at all. We need to look for the principles in it, but the ceremonial piece of it is dead and taken care of in Jesus. You can make arguments that it's important to be distinct and holy. You can also make an argument like Paul does in 1 Corinthians 9, 22, that I'm all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. So, one can make an argument that in negotiables that one emulates the culture to some extent. Uh, two interesting passages I'll give you here. Isaiah 49, 15, and 16. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. So I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. That's what God has done with us. And then Revelation 19, 16, talking about Jesus on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And if these two things aren't tattoos, they're something quite like them. Let me give you one more resource, really nice book by Lauren Winner called Girl Meets God. And it's a memoir of her conversion from secular Judaism to Christianity. And she has a little chapter in there about tattoos and talks about the Jewish perspective on this from the Pentateuch. And then she talks about a Christian perspective. And among other things, she notes that there is a long tradition of Christian tattooing and gives a bunch of examples. And so I had not been familiar with that, but I think that's also an interesting data point. We imagine it's something new when it's actually something that's been around for a long time and even practiced by Christians back in the day. All right, let's take a break here. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org to pray, provide, and promote the work of this ministry. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Leviticus 19 through 22 today, and in the first segment, we finished off chapter 19, what we had not covered in the previous episode. That takes us to chapter 20, which is on punishment for various sins. So this is in contrast to the mostly positive approach of chapter 19, And it brackets and resolves the sins that were described in chapter 18. The punishments here are ordered by the severity of the penalty, starting with death. So you can see that pattern as you go. We're going to read verses 1 through 5. The Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, any Israelite or any foreigner residing in Israel who sacrifices any of his children to Molech is to be put to death. 
The members of the community are to stone him. I myself will set my face against him and will cut him off from his people. For by sacrificing his children to Molech, he has defiled my sanctuary and profaned my holy name. If the members of the community close their eyes when that man sacrifices one of his children to Molech, and if they fail to put him to death, I myself will set my face against him and his family, and will cut them off from their people together with all who follow him in prostituting themselves to Molech. So references to this are sprinkled throughout the Old Testament. It is not the most frequent form of idolatry, but it is the most galling. And so it gets quite a bit of space here and uh, elsewhere in the Old Testament. Verses 2, 3, and 4 mention sacrificing any of his children to Molech. The word here is literally give, give his children to Molech. So it's a euphemism that's being used here for sacrifice. Notice that it's anyone. Again, this is a prohibition for the Israelite and the alien, this distinction we talked about in the previous episode. Molech was a god of the Ammonites, and to give your children to the god shows allegiance and is acting to appease or to bribe that god. Verse 5 mentions prostituting themselves to Molech. The prescription for this is that the person must be put to death. The people of the community are to stone him. There's no prolonged judicial process here. The witnesses and evidence are readily available. The death is by stoning, which occurs in a handful of times in the scriptures. We're not clear why stoning is prescribed. It's quite a deterrent, but then again, really any means of the death penalty is pretty rough in terms of deterrence. It's interesting that with stoning, you don't touch the person. So you're avoiding both touching the sin and the dead bodies that come from it. It also erects an instant monument to remind people of the sin. And I think the largest piece of this is that it's community versus individual punishment. And no one individual is culpable for the death, but it definitely depicts community rejection. This is not just a single person executing the judgment, but the community is coming up against this egregious sin. Verse 3, God says, I will set my face against that man. I will cut him off from his people. Again, that's that word karat, which is not just death, but promises no descendants, uh, probably implications for the afterlife and so on. Verses 4 and 5, if they fail to put him to death, if they close their eyes, God will cut them off too. So this is a big sin of omission. Going about your own business is not good enough here. Given the nature of this sin, it would be most likely detected by family, and it's difficult to confront family, but really important to do that. If you can't be holy within the family, we've seen this in the last few chapters in Leviticus, how can you be holy with respect to the world? You've got to start with the part that you control most closely, and that's in your home. And the punchline here is that if human courts fail, God's court will not. Matthew Henry says, Those that escape punishment from men yet shall not escape the righteous judgments of God. God's justice can't be appeased, and he can't be bribed. Now, why the seriousness of the sin? Well, from the text, verse 3 says, It defiled my sanctuary and profaned my holy name. It's the only explicit reference to this in the Pentateuch. It also is at least two capital crimes. It violates the first commandment on idolatry. It violates the sixth commandment on murder. And it probably violates the third commandment. So it could be just syncretism where you're merging religions. You've got the God of Israel. You've got the God of Molech. We put them together and it's okay. And look at the phrasing here in verse 3. It profaned my holy name. That sounds like the third commandment. It could be that this is just merely staggering sin that terribly pollutes the sanctuary or tabernacle. But the wording of verse 3 implies that there's a syncretism between Molech and God that these people are 
practicing, and this is just terrible from God's perspective. Why? Well, God is a God of life, not death and murder. God instituted the family. The husband's supposed to be the leader of the home, not a home breaker. God is a God of the helpless and the innocent, the poor, the old, the widow, and the alien that we've talked about before, and now children are added to the list. Or think about Jesus' words about millstones in Luke 17, verse 2. God is a jealous God, and here they are prostituting themselves in a relationship with another God. That's what idolatry is in the Old Testament. It's prostitution and adultery. It's unfaithfulness. And God is selfless at the end of the day by sending his son to die for knuckleheads like us. This is the exact opposite of that and claims something different about God. God ultimately gives his life for others. This is taking innocent life through sacrifice to another God. This is just terrible. Matthew Henry says, None trampled upon all the honors of human nature as this did, the burning of children in the fire of a dunghill God. It was a plain evidence that their gods were devils who desired and delighted in the misery and ruin of mankind, and that the worshippers were worse than beasts, perfectly stripped not only of reason but of natural affection. If the children were sacrificed to the malice of the devil, the parents must be sacrificed to the justice of God. Now, there's also some, maybe considerable, application to the issue of abortion in our times. But where I want to leave this is in the modern assumed sense of sin nature. We look at this and say we can't imagine that sin was that bad. Well, part of the Old Covenant is convincing people that they need a Savior. And we've had 3,000 years of Jewish and Christian history to refine our sense of the sin nature. But that's not where things were 3,000 years ago. And passages like this make that abundantly clear. Okay, next up is verses 6, and then 27 repeats the same theme. Verse 6, I will set my face against anyone who turns to mediums and spiritists to prostitute themselves by following them, and I will cut them off from their people. Then verse 27, a man who woman who is a medium or spiritist among you must be put to death. You are to stone them. Their blood will be on their own heads. So a definition of this might be seeking supernatural knowledge from supernatural sources other than God in particular, wanting to know the future. So there are obvious applications here in our day to horoscopes, fortune tellers, and the like. At best, such things are irrelevant. At worst, you're putting yourself in contact with evil spirits. Matthew Henry says, what greater madness can there be than for a man to go to a liar for information and to an enemy for advice? Only God was and is to be consulted. Now, maybe it's because I'm an economist, but verse 6 and 27 also point to demand and supply. Those who consult them in verse 6 and those who practice it in verse 27. Either way, uh, big punishment. Verse 6, God says, I'll set my face against them. They're prostituting themselves. And he promises karat, or being cut off. Verse 27 is more severe, must be put to death. You're to stone him, their blood will be on their own heads. Presumably karat is assumed here. So supply is treated more uh, strongly than demand. And I think broadly it indicates that the demand and supply of sin are different and can be treated differently in an ethical manner by both church and law. Verses 7 and 8 is a command and motivation. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and follow them. I'm the Lord who makes you holy. Verse 9 changes pace and wraps up this section. Anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death because they have cursed their father or mother. Their blood will be on their own head. 
And one might think this is harsh, but a couple of thoughts here. First of all, if you're cursing someone, it means you want them dead. So it is totally just to have this punishment. It also lays out the importance of parents along the lines of the fifth commandment in light this chapter, chapter 20, making connections between sex, life, and parents. If you have people trashing their parents, it leads to the breakdown of those relationships. The concern here is not about the individual father or mother per se, it's about the institution of parenthood. It's a social or civil concern. Then verses 10 through 21 lays out violations and punishments for the prohibitions that were described in chapter 18. Here it's organized by more or less severe. In chapter 18, it was by family relationship, moving from close to further away. A lot of use of terms like perversion, detestable, wicked, disgrace, dishonorable, and impure. So a very heavy rhetorical hammer here. As for some of the particulars, verse 13 talks about homosexuality. But remember that chapter 18, and again here, is aimed at men. This is not a verse that can be used directly against lesbianism. Now, why is that? Is it not as bad? Is it not as prevalent? Again, think context here. Most of this has been directed at men's behavior. And then in terms of the ceremonially clean, unclean business in chapters 11 through 15, there's no emission of semen in the case of lesbians. There's no reference to uncleanness as we saw in Leviticus 15. It falls to later, Romans 126, where Paul critiques this in, by the way, an effort to convict all people of sin. So he lists a range of sins that they would have found detestable but really the point of what Paul's doing in Romans 1 is to convince us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Verses 10 through 16 prescribes the death penalty for all involved. Verses 17 and 18 is cut off. Again, this is the divine court convicting when they probably wouldn't have been caught. Four times it says their blood will be on their own heads. This is in contrast to considering these punishments as murder. You're murdering an innocent person. You're killing a guilty person, as is happening here with judicial punishment. The means of death is only specified once here, verse 14, that they would be burned in the fire, and that's in contrast to what we saw in verses 2 and 27 with respect to stoning. Verses 15 and 16, the practice of bestiality results in the judgment of both the human and the animal. That's interesting. And again, as I said before, this is punishing by the court, so it's a social or civil concern rather than a focus solely or even primarily on the individuals. Verse 19 uses the phrase, both would be held responsible. Verses 20 and 21, a punishment of childlessness. A few thoughts here as we wrap up this section. It points to the practical consequences of these sins. It is personal. It is physical and psychological. It is familial. It is communal. And all of it is a type of our relationship with God. More broadly, it implies the importance and the benefits of sexuality properly lived out. And because sexual activity involves the sanctity of life and marriage, it is therefore sacred. Nothing that would interfere with having children, including verse 14, sex during menstruation, uh, is going to be acceptable. Anything that makes sex less likely at other times, anything that gets in the way of fruitfulness and fertility is to be condemned. On the purpose of punishment, Gordon Winham points to five reasons in scriptures. He bases his argument on Deuteronomy 19, verses 18 through 21. And he says that punishment is for justice. Second, it's designed to purge the evil from among you. And that can't be the deed itself. Instead, it must be referring to pollution of the land, as we talked about at the end of chapter 18. It also serves a deterrent effect. 
It also allows for full and complete reconciliation. And finally, the idea of restitution, personal compensation, rather than the idea of civil fines, which go to the state instead of the individual. In terms of the means of punishment, Wynnum also makes an interesting observation that these are small, tightly knit household and village cultures with few problems, especially given a conservative and authoritarian society. And so they would take care of their own business and then invoke judges as necessary to mediate and deal with difficult cases. Wynnum makes one final observation. He says the position of the New Testament on these penalties is not clear-cut. On the one hand, Christ appears to endorse the death penalty for dishonoring parents in Matthew 15.4 and Mark 7.10. Paul sums up the list of grievous sins in Romans 1 with the words, those who do such things deserve to die. On the other hand, Christ did not insist on the death penalty for the woman taken in adultery. And so this ends up being a really complicated topic. For our purposes here, it is to say that the civil authorities, if they do punishment well, it is permissible, albeit not necessarily beneficial, to be harsh with respect to crime. So very much a debatable issue. All right, let's take our second break here. If you're on Facebook, like Pure Radio, podcasts of previous episodes are available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Leviticus 19 through 22 today, and in this segment, we're going to cover chapters 21 and 22. This is additional regulations for the priest and the animal sacrifices. The key concepts continue with respect to holiness, that the priest and the animals are to be separated to divine service and are to be whole and complete. In terms of structure, there are six sections with the same ending phrase. So if you're reading this straight through, you'll catch that pattern. But for our purposes, we've mostly covered this material earlier, so we'll be skimming and jumping around. Verses 1 through 9 has instructions for the priest. Verses 1 through 4, he must not make himself ceremonially unclean for any of his people who die. Now, verses 2 and 3 provides exceptions for a close relative, providing some examples, but verse 4, not for people related to him by marriage. It's interesting as a small point that verse 3 mentions unmarried, dependent teen sisters. Of course, if the sister was married, the husband would take care of it. If she was younger, then the parents would and could take care of it. It's also interesting that the priest's wife is not mentioned, but presumably it's assumed. Remember the shock of Ezekiel 24 when the priest Ezekiel is not allowed to mourn the death of his wife. Priests were to keep a greater distance from uncleanness, and we had covered this topic earlier. Another angle to pursue here is that all of this can be seen as polemic against Egypt's religious and priestly obsessions with death and weaning Israel from worshiping the dead. Verse 5 says they must not shave their heads or shave off the edge of their beards or cut their bodies. Again, these are likely aspects of worshiping the dead and perhaps even offerings to the dead of hair. Now, impulsive anguish signs of grief are legitimate, but not something planned like cutting your beard or cutting your body. Or maybe the point is that they're not supposed to mourn as much anyway. The priests are supposed to exhibit moderation and patience under affliction. They're supposed to exhibit faith in God's sovereignty, goodness, and justice, and modeling that such behavior is not needed to get God's attention. Verse 6 reminds us that the priests are holy, especially when they present offerings, the same language used of the laity in chapter 20, verse 26. Verse 7, they must not marry women defiled by prostitution or divorced from their husbands. They could marry a widow. This does represent the call to purity for a priest. 
It represents good character and the importance of marriage. And as we'll see in the next verse, family. Verse 9, the priest's daughter should not become a prostitute. If so, she must be burned in the fire. Broadly, this speaks to the cost of destructive behaviors within a priest's family. It's reminiscent in a New Testament context of what's expected of deacons and elders in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Leviticus 21, 10 through 15 provides instructions for the high priest. Verse 10, he must not let his hair become unkempt or tear his clothes. So a higher level of moderation along the lines of what we just described. It's okay for priests to mourn somewhat, but not the high priest at all. He's held to a higher standard. The other issue here is that the high priest's head had been anointed and he wore special clothes. So it's not appropriate for him to mess up his hair or tear his clothes. Verse 11, he must not enter a place where there's a dead body. Again, extending the standards for priests. And this is even for family. It's reminiscent of Christ saying, who is my mother and brothers in Luke 14 and Luke 9. The idea that you follow with Jesus by being his disciple or you bury your father. You can hear the echoes of Leviticus and the call of the high priest and what Jesus calls his disciples to do. Verse 13, again, standards that are higher for marriage. He must marry a virgin, not even a widow. Verse 15 says, so he will not defile his offspring. This would ensure that any children were his. And this is both the reality and the reputation of that, which is especially important with a hereditary priesthood. It's interesting, as an aside, the priest would marry at all. The text seems to apply that they should marry. So higher standards for the high priest than the priest, higher standards for priests than the lay people. The symbolism here is there's three levels in the world. The Gentiles are unclean, the Jews are clean, and the priests are sacrificial. And we see the three levels here as well. Lawrence Richards observes that with intimacy and responsibility comes a call to greater holiness. Implicitly, this is an early version of the servant leader model. There are greater responsibilities, opportunities, and restrictions. And it paves the way for Christ's even higher standards. Ironically, it also illustrates that the law cannot represent moral perfection. It's impossible to attain that. They're supposed to try, but it's impossible. Why is there nothing in these passages on morals explicitly? Well, because it's assumed and subsumed under the idea of being holy. In the New Testament, we think of passages like 1 Peter 2, 5, and 9 about a holy priesthood. That's what we're called to be. And think about Paul on not being married in 1 Corinthians 7 so that one can be dedicated to ministry. Chapter 21, 16 through 23 lays out the physical regulations for priests. Four times it says, none of Aaron's descendants who has a defect may come near to offer sacrifice. Then there's a list of specifics and it's pointing to the perfection of priest, not actually, but as a type. Again, they're trying to represent in God's economy what Jesus is going to do as the perfect priest with the perfect sacrifice. Likewise, this list is duplicated in chapter 22, verses 24, with the perfection that's expected in the animals themselves. No visible defects in either. Matthew Henry makes the point that if the body was required to be this, then how much more so one's mind and soul. Verse 22 notes that priests who are deformed may eat the most holy food of his God, so they still had access to resources. They're not kicked out of the household or you know, on their own or anything like that. They're still supported, but they're just not allowed to approach God and his holiness. Not being fully physically whole and complete, it was not consistent with a picture of approaching a holy God. Chapter 22 gets into violations of offerings with ceremonial impurity. 
This is generally organized by declining severity. If you're ceremonially unclean and yet come near the sacred offering, you must be cut off from God's presence. If you're unclean for a variety of reasons, you may not eat the sacred offerings until he is cleansed. And from there, you have a bathing and a p.m. evening, so it's wait and wash like we had talked about before. Again, even in this time frame, he would have had access to the priestly fees and money, so it's not like he's going to starve to death just because he can't access the sacred food. Verses 10 through 16 has some other regulations on who could eat, defines the family in certain ways that you know there are reasonable questions about. If you look at verses 26 through 30 in chapter 22, there's other regulations for sacrifice. No young animals less than a week old. They've got to get through a Sabbath parallel circumcision. Verse 28, no parent and child on the same day. We're not totally sure why this is a problem. You could make a humaneness argument. Perhaps it was emulating a pagan practice. Matthew Henry says it looked ill-natured toward the species to kill two generations at once, as if one designed the ruin of the kind. And then verse 29 and 30, there were to be no leftovers. The end of chapter 22 provides a nice wrap-up to this entire section. Keep my commands and follow them. I am the Lord. Do not profane my holy name, for I must be acknowledged as holy by the Israelites. I am the Lord who made you holy and who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. Keep my commands. Acknowledge me as holy. It's motivated three times by the phrase, I am the Lord, and a reminder of God's grace in bringing them out of Egypt. All right, let's take our last break here. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at PureRadio.org to spread the word about Pure Radio, the station, and this show. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Leviticus 19 through 22 and wrapping up a two-week series on chapter 17 through 22, which is what's called the Holiness Code, or at least most of it. First three segments today, we covered the text itself. And so in this last segment, I want to talk about what the text says directly and indirectly about motivations for pursuing holiness. So we have five things to say from the text itself. First, God says, I am the Lord your God, 22 times in chapters 18 through 20. It is the opening of the passage in chapter 18. It is the close of the passage in chapter 22. As Wynnum points out in a discussion I had in the last episode, this is a really rich phrase. It's not just God saying who he is, that when God says, I am Yahweh, it's the personal God. It's the God who has delivered them from Egypt. It's the God who's been with them. It's the God who tabernacles with them, etc. It's not just God saying his name. It evokes a large range of emotions and experiences of God's goodness and grace towards them. And so that leads to the second point, chapter 19, verse 36, and chapter 22, verse 32. Again, at the end of the passage, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. It closes out both of the two main sections. Third, you've got chapter 19, verses 1 and 2, and chapter 20, verse 26. Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Again, it opens chapter 19 and closes out chapter 20. Then you have the commands, basically God saying, because I said so. Chapter 18, verse 4, you must obey my laws and also be careful to follow my decrees. Chapter 19, both sections of chapter 19 end with keep all my decrees. But again, even the I said so commands are in the context of the above and their history together, the relationship, the previous motivations and explanations. But sometimes just do it is enough. And then finally, at least from a New Testament perspective, chapter 20, verses 7 and 8 might be the most important, to consecrate yourselves and be holy. And that was in the middle of chapter 20's list of penalties. 
it doesn't say consecrate your actions and do holy. It's focusing on who they are, not what they do. What we are comes from who we are. Matthew Henry says, make the tree good and the fruit will be good. And this is very consistent thought from the New Testament. Then when God says, follow my decrees later in verse 8, that's where it's coming from. Likewise, the end of verse 8, I'm the Lord who makes you holy. And that's true for us, both with respect to justification through the blood of Christ, we're made holy, and sanctification through the Holy Spirit, the Lord makes us holy. God makes us holy, which then enables us to be holy in our day-to-day lives. There are also five indirect motivations. The first two are sticks. Number one, it If you do what you're supposed to do, you avoid the rituals and the prescribed punishments from both man and God. You avoid the cost of getting clean and right with God and others. Now, there is a difference between willful and accidental sin, but even accidents can be somewhat under our control, and one is encouraged here to avoid the sticks, to avoid the sin. Perhaps this is the most tangible and therefore important answer, right? A lot of times, Uh, Younger kids respond to the sticks of punishment just to avoid the punishment, and that's part of what Israel is facing here. Second is longer run, what God and the land would do to them in response, or you could think of it as what God would do through the land. We talked about this at the end of chapters 18 and 20. Do not defile yourselves, how the nations I'm going to drive out before you became defiled. Don't imitate what they did. When the land was defiled, I punished it for its sin. The land vomited out its inhabitants, and you don't want to follow in the same spot. G. Campbell Morgan, whatever man reigns over, it is affected by his character. If he be polluted and corrupt, then all that is under his sway becomes polluted and corrupt as well. And so God's idea there is that the land would vomit them out if they are unrighteous. So that's the long-run stick that's in hand here. Matthew Henry says, when we observe how ill sin looks in others, we should use this as an argument to preserve our purity. Or again, Matthew Henry, if they made the vices of the Canaanites their own with their land, their fate would be the same. It's similar to Paul's argument in Romans 11, 19 through 21. You will say then branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in, granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Or think of the writer of Hebrews in chapter 4, verse 11. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, the one that they had failed to enter earlier in chapter 4, so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. In addition to two sticks, there are also two carrots. There's a call to abundant life. Chapter 18, verse 5, the man who obeys them will live by them. Chapter 20, verse 24, promises an inheritance, a land flowing with milk and honey. We think of the abundant life of John 10.10. Generally speaking, this is getting to the practical, beneficial aspects of living by God's instructions. If God created us, then living according to his plan is in our best interest. The NIV Study Bible says the law was the way of life for the redeemed, not a way of salvation for the lost. We're not saved by good works, but we're saved to do good works. We're saved by a good and great God so that following him in obedience is in our best interest. James 1.25 talks about the perfect law that brings freedom. The second carrot is how special they were to God. Chapter 20, verse 24, I will give you an inheritance, a land flowing with milk and honey. Chapter 20, verse 26, they were God's own. Deuteronomy 14, 2 talks about them being a treasured possession 
Or again, think about the famous verses in Exodus 19, verses 4 through 6. Now, this is a key idea for them and for us. We are dearly loved by God, and that should inspire us to want to please God, to follow God, to think it's smart to follow God, etc. But to be special to God can lead one to pride, right, instead of humility or graciousness or the like. And so there is a tension, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, God calls Abram. He says, I'll be a blessing to you so that you can be a blessing to other people. God doesn't bless us for kicks. He blesses us so that we can extend that blessing to other people. Think about 1 Kings 11 with the Queen of Sheba, and you've got Solomon acting as a blessing to those around him. People are coming to Israel and being blessed and understanding the God of Israel because of how he's blessed them. So how do we be blessed and extend the blessing? How do we be in the world but not of the world, right? We can't be like Egypt and Canaan. God's brought them into the wilderness to separate them from those influences and to be effective. But to be effective, you have to be in the world around you. So Daniel 1, think about uh, the context where Daniel bows to some cultural demands, but not others. And that takes us to the last point, which is a call to distinctiveness. And that distinctiveness, particularly for a New Testament believer, is an involved distinctiveness. Romans 12, 2, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. 1 Peter 2, 12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. It's not live such good lives in the church, it's live such good lives among the pagans that they may see your good deeds. So it's a call to be distinct, but a call to be involved. Or Jesus, in some of his last words before the crucifixion, John 17, verses 15 through 19, my prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them, make them holy, by the truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. And when you hear sanctified, we're, again, we're talking about holy and distinct and making a difference in this world. For them, the comparisons are to Egypt and Canaan as they're getting their legs underneath them, coming out of slavery, starting a new nation. They had a number of disadvantages that we don't have. But chapter 18, verse 3 calls out Egypt and Canaan in particular. Egypt, their past. Canaan, their future. With respect to Egypt, Matthew Henry says, the greatest absurdity to retain such an affection for their house of bondage and the greatest ingratitude to God who had so wonderfully and graciously delivered them. And so to be attracted to Egypt is strange. And the same is true of us. God's delivered us from so many things. How can we go back to those things? How much of this was to separate them from the Canaanites versus immorality per se? And the answer is both. Chapter 20, verse 23, you must not live according to the customs of the nations I'm going to drive out before you because they did all these things. I abhorred them, especially with respect to sex, which was a special concern given Canaanite practice and human nature. In all such things, it's crucial that we believe that God wants the best for us and they had to believe that God wanted the best for them. Thus, the continuous references to God who had brought them out of Egypt. Four times in chapter 20, verses 24 through 26, four times the word separate is used. They're to separate from Egypt, separate from Canaan, separate from the connections that went with that between food, sex, idolatry, and family. One last point. Note that God 
did separation as he created and called that order from chaos. That word is used four times also in Genesis 1. And this is what allows life to multiply and fill the earth in Genesis 1, 22 and 28. Jacob Milgram says, Israel's separation from the nations is the continuation and climax of the cosmic creation process. Just as Yahweh separated in creation, so Israel must separate from the nations in order to create order in the human world. Israel separates from the Gentiles in the New Testament. They're brought back together in the mystery of the unity of Jew and Gentile. That wall has been torn down. Glory be to God for that. Good to be with you today. Previous episodes are available by podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google. Hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet.